Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, John Cable. Our guest today is Kevin Bryneal, here to discuss his new book, Settler Memory, The Disavowal of Indigeneity and the Politics of Race in the United States. In this ambitious new book, Kevin Bryneal confronts the chronic displacement of indigeneity in the politics and discourse around race in American political theory and culture, arguing that the ongoing influence of settler colonialism has undermined efforts to understand indigenous politics while also hindering conversation about race itself. By re-examining major episodes, texts, writers, and memories of the political past from the 17th century to the present, Brineal reveals the power of settler memory at work and the persistent disavowal of indigeneity. He also shows how indigenous and black intellectuals have understood ties between racism and white settler memory, even as the settler dimensions of whiteness are frequently erased in our discourse about race, whether in conflicts over Indian mascotry or the white nationalist underpinnings of Trumpism. Envisioning a new political future, Brineal challenges readers to refuse settler memory and consider a third reconstruction that can meaningfully link anti-racism and anti-colonialism. Kevin Bryneal is professor of politics at Babson College and is also the author of the 2007 book, The Third Space of Sovereignty, The Postcolonial Politics of U.S. Indigenous Relations. Kevin, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Thank you very much, John. Um, I appreciate the invitation and the conversation. Sure. Well, before we get into the book, uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about your own background and how you ultimately arrived at the topic of settler memory? Sure. You know, it's a long story, and I think uh, a lot of academics, scholars, writers, it's a meandering path. I mean, for me, um, my connection to uh, interest in and study of and support of indigenous people's politics has to be traced back to my upbringing um, in British Columbia. Um, um, I was born and raised, I'm of white settler ancestry, um, on the unceded Coast Salish people's territories in what is commonly called Vancouver. Um, and there, and not to say Canada is so great, I refer to it in the book as the world's most overrated country, (laughs) but at least there, um, and you can see this going on right now in conflicts, indigenous people's politics are at least much more public, much more aware of them. And so as a young person, not terribly politicized, I was at least aware of treaties and blockades, indigenous sovereignty. So I went, when I went to the United States, the new school specifically, um, and tried to sort of figure out where my passions connected to my scholarly interests, there was a notable absence in political science on the study of indigenous people's politics and settler colonialism in and of the United States. So that's what led me to the third space of sovereignty in terms of that project. And then since that project and sort of teaching and studying and engaging in um, race politics, works towards anti-racism, 
supporting anti-racist projects, but also being committed to anti-colonialism and the study of, and especially the teaching of um, uh, indigenous people's politics, critical race studies. Um, I started to think more about the difficult relationship between race studies and indigenous studies, race politics and indigenous people's politics. Um, Both very much exist, but the interaction and the relationship between them and among them in the United States is a very complex, fraught subject. And so I eventually moved my way towards looking at some of the major narratives, texts, themes of U.S. race politics and the way in which, as I say, indigenous people's politics and settler colonialism aren't so much absent or erased, but in the background, sort of there and not there at at the same time. And so I started to think about it through the notion of memory of what we know, but sort of forget and disavow that's in the background, habitually there, but not quite active in terms of our voices, the way we think about things and analyze, and also how we mobilize politically. And so I work through, as a teacher especially, thinking about how to get my students to think about not just indigenous studies on the one hand, indigenous people's politics on the one hand, and say race politics, black politics, immigration politics on the other hand, to actually bring especially the study of of race politics and indigenous people's politics together. And as I argue in the book, to understand that without engaging in indigenous people's politics, without engaging in studying settler colonialism, I think we do not um, actually get enough of, and we're not going far enough in our understanding of race, racism, and the fight, uh, the anti-racist fight uh, in the U.S. And so that led me through to the major narratives I think we're going to talk about today. The basic thesis of settler memory seems to be that indigeneity is, in in some pretty interesting ways, both present and absent in the stories that many Americans tell about themselves. So can you elaborate a bit more on on what you mean there and also on on your theoretical underpinnings, the theoretical underpinnings of your your argument? Sure. I mean, here we are. It's it's what, four days from Thanksgiving, right? And so there's going to be a big celebration in some schools. There's going to be probably um, plays. You're going to have images of native people. You're going to have the classic pilgrim story in, in, in the colonies. And, and you're going to have this performance. And November is also Native American month. And you're going to have, you know, now that there's starting to be team names being changed, but you're still going to have high school and other professional teams with with um, Native American monikers on them. Um, we have, uh, in, in what I mean by the background, there's a presence of indigeneity in one form all across the United States, whether it's the names of cities and towns and states. As you mentioned, I live in Massachusetts, um, and that is drawn from the Massachusetts people. Um, and that in our cultural, artistic, political, social lives, indigeneity is not erased. It's very much there, often in the background, sometimes coming to the foreground for often very settler events such as Thanksgiving. Um, and so to speak of it as race, is erased, is to imply that there is no acknowledgement or engagement with indigeneity at all. However, the way usually indigeneity, indigenous peoples, and colonialism are engaged with is as, as something of the past, something that once happened, um, that may in some liberal forms was tragic and sad, um, but does not reflect the contemporary moment. And so I often use the term disavowal, which is not the same as, as erasure. It's a way in which we deny or deflect or ignore or find rationa- rationales, uh, <laughs> find a rationale for not engaging in something that's contemporary. So indigenous people's politics and concerns are matters of, matters of the past. So is colonialism. Um, we occasionally acknowledge it in terms of place names, in terms of um, annual celebrations, so to speak, of Thanksgiving and other ones. Um, 
but we don't actually engage with indigeneity and settler colonialism, and also importantly, what it means to be a settler. And this is a key part of my argument, what it means to be a settler today in our contemporary period. And I'm not just talking about 2021, but the, the, the narrative that brought us here. Um, and so a key part of my argument is to say that indigeneity actually resides constitutively in a way that's shaping what it means to be white, um, what it means to talk about race and race politics, what it means to talk about even being an American. And, um, and we sort of leave that in the background, often don't bring it up. If we do bring it up, it's often to mention it, say that's, that's part of the history, and then to move on to something else, to elide it, to disavow it. And I want to bring it back out of the background, to bring it out of the background and think about what it means to actually engage with it seriously as constitutive, as very, very much shaping our own um, social, artistic um, um, uh, narratives, but also very importantly, essentially for me as a political scientist, our politics and the way we understand where, why we are where we are today um, what is the relationship between the past and the present? How does it shape our present relationships to one another, especially along the lines of race, indigeneity, settlers, and colonialism? And how can we shift these narratives to maybe open up different ways to think about our future possibilities? So in the first chapter, you take a foundational event in American history, um, and particularly in the, in the history of how race developed, and you sort of turn it on its head. So how and why have both historians and non-historians tended to misread Bacon's Rebellion? Yeah, a great question. I mean, I think it's Bacon's Rebellion is a great example of settler memory in the sense that it's not so much the people who are, who are reproducing settler memory habitually, um, not even necessarily consciously, are overtly pro-colonialist. In fact, many people are anti-colonialist, anti-racist. But Bacon's Rebellion has taken on this sort of originary... Um, a mnemonic foundational moment in uh, U.S. racial history, of course, it's prior to the creation of the United States, in which race gets created, the black-white binary gets created, um, which you had the potential for a cross-racial class uh, coalition of potentially white and black people against the ruling class, and that was broken and, and by the ruling class who divided white and black people, working class people, um, against one another instead of against the ruling class. So this becomes a classic argument of how we could have had one form of coalition between working class people across racial lines and went to, ended up with another one um, across that was pitting people against racial lines. So white working class people ally with white elite people, rich people. Um, this is foundational for the relationship between class and race in U.S. political history and racial history. And there's a lot of truth to it. Fundamentally, and this is almost always acknowledged in the narratives, uh, Bacon's Rebellion begins with massive Indian killing, um, the effort to get Indian Native people's property, um, intense violence against Native people. Um, and almost all the narratives acknowledge this and then move on to the story of the relationship between white, the construction of whiteness and blackness and the relationship between poor and rich. That latter part of the narrative is completely important, but there's no effort to engage in what does it mean that a good portion of this particular initial violence was basically settler violence, white settler violence for land, white settler violence for property. And so when we're talking about the meaning of whiteness that comes out of Bacon rebellion, Bacon's rebellion, we certainly need to talk about uh, class conflict and the elision or the eliding of class conflict through racial conflict. But we also need to talk about the relationship to land and property and settlement and how that is also constitutive, formative of what it means to be white 
And that's the part that I want to emphasize, that what it means to be white coming out of Bacon's Rebellion is certainly about being anti-Black. It is also about being anti-Indian and for the claims to land and being a settler. So that's a key part in terms of the meaning. All the facts are there, so to speak. All the facts are there in the story. Uh, Kealani Kawanui, who is also the co-editor of the series that my book's published in, she uh, has one of the most recent articles that actually draws this out. Kehlani really effectively draws out this, this absence and what absence and what it means to make it a presence. For me, I want to really emphasize that we need to talk about whiteness as a white settler identity. And that's missing from the Bacon's Rebellion story. When we put it back in, I think we then expand our sense of what white supremacy means to account for colonialism. And I think it's fundamental. And it's something that's articulated, as, as I point out, in articles, in teaching, without actually going back and thinking about not just the history itself, but the meaning of the history itself. And that's why I think that's when we're talking about memory. Well, you make a really great point, I think, um, throughout the chapter and, and especially at the beginning that, that lots of, you know, well-intentioned historians and historians who are also teachers want to include Native people, um, a discussion of Native land in, in their discussions of American racism, uh, the history of American racism, but they often find themselves just dropping Indians halfway through the story because telling that story in that way becomes too complicated. Absolutely. And, and let me just bring this right up to, you know, because people might be listening and saying, why should I care about what's going on in the 17th century? And why does it matter to think about this in terms of whiteness as a white settler identity? So let's take, you know, the decision, um, the not guilty verdict for Kyle Rittenhouse just a few days ago. Right. And so people have been talking about as him um, obviously going there as somebody who was opposing the Black Lives Matter rally, brought a gun, helped to provoke a conflict, killed um, two white, excuse me, supporters of, of Black Lives Matter, so anti-racist, wounded somebody else. And so it's been articulated that he is um, a racist, white, you know, he's been seen fla- uh, flashing the white power sign and a white nationalist. Probably all true. He went there to defend property. And his defense is I was defending property. Now, my argument is he is not simply a white nationalist, probably. He's a white settler nationalist. And to understand Kyle Rittenhouse and how the language of self-defense and the language of him not simply being a sort of, you know, evil-eyed racist, but a, a kid who sees himself as defending the land, defending the property, is a classic white settler art- articulation. And if we split off the notion of race and racial um, hierarchy from colonialism and land dispossession and genocide, we do not make the connection back between um, racial acts that are, say, opposing violently the efforts to um, bring about anti-racist measures through the Black Lives Matter movement and how the defense of property is also fundamentally tied into historically today, a settler colonial relationship to belonging and the violent defense of white settler belonging and land and this on this on this in these territories. And so I think if we start to think about whiteness as a form of white settlerness, I think we can expand our analysis and understanding of the history and the present of what it means to talk about a white supremacist society and what somebody like a Kyle Rittenhouse claims and thinks he's defending. And I think that's the benefit of starting to rethink and reimagine this narrative of even going back to Bacon's Rebellion, what it means to be white in this particular society. We have to account for the settler part, and then we can open up and widen the conversation of something like the Rittenhouse um, case, his own defense, his own imaginary of protecting the civic community, 
and I would call it the settler civic community, and his leaning upon self-defense and the defense of property. And I often bring in the piece, uh, bring in in the book, the role of uh, stand your ground policies, in which stand your ground have been historically very anti-Black, but also the language is very clear that it's also about a claim to ground and land. And that's also built upon the genocide of Indigenous people and dispossession of Indigenous peoples from their land. And that's, that's what bringing this, for me, bringing this narrative back in through 17th century tropes that are used in teaching and in scholarship um, and start to expand out so that we can have a, another vision of what's going on in our time. So moving on a bit and discussing the reconstruction period and specifically W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, popular account of it, you, you have quite a bit to say about how land, both the idea and the story of land gets talked about. So can you explain that a bit? Absolutely. I mean, Somebody like Du Bois, I mean, Du Bois's Black Reconstruction is canonical. I, mean, I think those of us, everybody should read it. It's one of the most important historical books uh, about the United States, about race in the United States, about race and class in the United States. And so my argument there, and, and it's again, almost like Bacon's Rebellion, it's, it's, it's the notion of reconstruction is a type of framing that goes back to this particular period after the Civil War, in which we're thinking about how do we change the society? Uh, radically change the society to be um, anti-racist, to be non-racist, to be have equality and, and freedom along lines of race, class, and hopefully gender. Um, and um, so it's a fundamental text, a profound text that, in, that served its own purpose for arguing against um, those in the so-called Dunning School who saw Reconstruction as basically a failed project for many reasons, um, including the argument that somehow Black Americans weren't ready to be uh, free uh, citizens active politically and responsible for themselves, which of course was all racist nonsense. In the argument that Du Bois makes powerfully that we all read and reproduce by his own account, land and the distribution of land is fundamental to the econ- to the political and just importantly economic freedom of black Americans. Um, and he goes back to land all the time. Now Du Bois himself does not theorize or think about where this land comes from. Um, what the role and the meaning of land is, um, and what the role and meaning of indigenous people are in relationship to this post re- this reconstruction project. Now, I don't actually critique, but Du Bois for that, he's done enough for us. My concern is not to say Du Bois should have written a bit different book. My my directions to the readers, the many of us who should be reading Du Bois, to think about what it means that the question of land, what I call the story of land, is both absent and presence. Present. There's an assumption about what land means, often in terms of property. There are other times in which it could mean something else. And for me, going back and thinking about the story of land is thinking about the story of dispossession. It's thinking about the story of how land comes to have its meaning from land that's indigenous territory to land that's constructed as property. And also to the, to the story of, of indigenous people's own history in this period both in terms of being dispossessed, experiencing massive, horrible genocidal violence, but also forms of resistance um, in in various locations. And also um, forcing agreements for treaties that allow for the expression of indigenous sovereignty. So I think there's a missing narrative here uh, in terms of the story of land and what it means for the possibility, if we're going to talk about a third reconstruction right now, which I think there's a language of third reconstruction, where is the story of land? And I don't mean the story of property, the story of land and our relationship to it and land and all life. Um, and where, where is the story of indigenous people's sovereignty? It's not for me just a matter of, of mixing this all in, stirring it up, and we have a new project. I think we have really think about what the major sort of 
historical narratives are, tropes are that we draw upon, the lessons of the past as we move forward, uh, what is there that we need to draw from it and reproduce? And what do we actually need to rethink in terms of the type of assumptions, disavowals even, that we've engaged in as, say, a type of left political project if we're going to talk about Reconstruction? And Du Bois's text is incredibly powerful, but also teases a little bit in terms of the role of land that I think those of us going back to the text I think we have an obligation to look at it again and to really think about what the story of land is and what what other possibilities for liberation and a reconstruction could um, could we imagine and maybe enact ideally if we rethought the relationship to land that wasn't just about property. Right, and I, I thought it was interesting too that that we're we're rethinking what the political left is saying about, uh, about history and about these, these foundational historical events. It's not just fault that you find in the sort of reactionary, right. It's also sort of a, a progressive, uh, historical narrative that also needs to be retooled, um, in the direction that you're talking about. Yeah. And, and, and for me, it's, it's, it's what I call sort of a loving embrace. These are people who are my, my allies and comrades who I've learned from, I've learned so much from Du Bois and from Bacon's Rebellion and, and the people I'm engaging with are not, I'm not, I'm not uh, referring to them as on yeah the opposite side of the so-called barricades. I think this is part of an engage, a, a sort of imminent critique where we can think about how we can do things better. And so Du Bois, I fundamentally shaped by Du Bois and, you know, we'll get to Baldwin and Bacon's Rebellion. But given that I've been working in the area of indigenous studies and settler colonial studies for decades now, um, I, I start to, as many others have, I'm not the only one making these sorts of arguments, start to see the problem with these gaps and these, these absences of presences for how we in the left start to imagine a better world. And I think if we don't engage with that seriously, say around the issues of, of indigeneity, of what sovereignty means, it's not state sovereignty, but indigenous sovereignty, of what the story of land can be, we're just going to reproduce the same mistakes, the same problems, the same tensions we've had in the past. So I think it's our obligation to, to both draw lessons from the past, to be the beneficiaries of all that Du Bois provided us, but also, I think, to engage critically with, with what those lessons might be, what they offer us, and what we as have an obligation to supplement, rethink, and reimagine. Well, you mentioned Baldwin. So the writer James Baldwin is well known for his, for his unsparing critique of American racism. Um, how did he also grapple with the nation's settler colonial past and present, and and how might we sort of begin to read him differently? Yeah, uh, great question. I mean, I, I Baldwin. I teach Baldwin every. I thought I've been teaching Baldwin for years in my critical race and critical race. It's now called critical race and indigenous studies. Um, you know, the, my initial way in which I actually started really thinking through Baldwin in this was in the fire next time. We has this one moment where he talks about how. Um, the black American, and then in, in parentheses, you know, except for the Native American, has been treated worse than anybody else. And it was the notion that's only two or three times in Fire Next Time he mentions Native people that he knows, and Baldwin is, as you say, one of the most searing, cutting critics um, uh, who sheds light on, on the, the, what is U.S. white supremacy, its violence, the burning house of the U.S. in terms of its white supremacist uh, foundation and maintenance. He knows and sees the history of, of settler colonialism. He doesn't call it that. That was not sort of a, a vibrant term at his time of uh, the genocide of indigenous people, dispossession. 
Um, and so he gestures towards it. And this gesture towards it and then away from it is, a, is again, this type of disavow. Once again, like Du Bois, I've, I've been fundamentally shaped in the way I view the world for James Baldwin. I'm indebted to him. And so my, my critique is then not saying that Baldwin should have talked about this in a more elaborate way. But it is to say, since Baldwin is one of the most read, well-read, I mean, read, often read um, authors today around race, um, that we who are engaging with Baldwin um, need to have an opportunity to, to draw from all these moments where he's gesturing towards um, genocide of indigenous people, towards indigenous people themselves and their activism in the 70s and colonialism, and to incorporate that back into the wider sense of what he's talking about when he's talking about the white, white supremacy in the United States. Because I think with Baldwin, we have the opportunity through his text to think of what it means to talk about white settler supremacy to talk about the white settler. You know, he has a very powerful um, passage in um, um, the piece from 1984 in um, Ebony, Mag Ebony Jet Magazine, I believe, called um, On Being White and Other Lies, in which he talks about the Norwegian becoming white. And he certainly talks about anti-blackness, but he also talks about violence towards Native Americans, violence towards the land, sexual assaults of, of, of black women. He talks about all this array of what it means to be white. And um, the part that we don't sort of draw in to think about what Baldwin's saying, and I don't think he's gesturing directly towards colonialism, it's not a language that he was articulating, is the role of, of violence towards indigenous peoples, um, sexual violence, racialized sexual violence, and violence towards the land. And for me, I think it's an opportunity to take the brilliance of James Baldwin and open him up even more for the reader of how he is gesturing towards and then sometimes away from, but then back again towards settler colonialism, um, the presence of indigenous peoples historically and to our time, and also how you can't understand the United States, not only without looking at white supremacy and anti-blackness, you cannot understand it without understanding um, um, genocidal actions and dispossession towards indigenous peoples and the persistent politics of indigenous peoples. And as, as, throughout his sort of oeuvre and his own arc, he starts to recognize and speak more of contemporary political actions by indigenous peoples. And so he's very interesting character. Character is a, is a demeaning way to think about somebody so powerful, author and, and um, uh, witness, as he would refer to himself, of the U.S. And I think we under... Um, we undermine ourselves and our reading of it if we don't start to take account of other things he's gesturing towards that bring them back into the picture to think about what it means to have Baldwin help us see a wider picture of U.S., not just white supremacy, but white settler supremacy. And, and he can be sort of a model for us in that uh, you mentioned in the book uh, once or twice about how he and, and you, you just mentioned now how, how he sort of evolves in his thought over the years, um, even uh in the early 1980s, uh, I think it was Audre Lorde, um, sort of in discussion with with Audre Lorde uh, in relation to gender and other topics. And so, uh, the more we learn, the more our, our thought evolves. And then the, um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And if I can build up on that, I mean, I think that the the conversation with Audre Lorde is incredibly important because the one thing I have not said yet to my um, my own liability, I should have, is a part of I think bringing in settler colonialism is also talking about violent settler masculinity. And obviously white supremacy is already um, sexually violent and heteropatriarchal. But the, def the defense of the domestic realm, the defense of property, all, almost always has some sort of an either implicit or explicit form of heteropatriarchal violence that is justified, um, that is about 
dominant violent uh, settler masculinity. Um, and I think we can come back to the notion of Rittenhouse and the Proud Boys and other people in terms of what they're defending. Um, and I think when it talks about when when she when he's engaged with a conversation with Lord, she's trying to get him to think through more, first of all, their relationship to America, but also the fundamental heteropatriarchal um, core of the U.S. project, uh, the role of, of sexual and racial violence. And I think to talk about uh, settler colonialism is to talk not only about anti-indigeneity and indigenous violence, uh, violence towards indigenous people and dispossession. It is to talk about um, settler um, heteropatriarchal violence, settler masculinity as at the core of what we're talking about when we talk about white settlers. And I think Lord is somebody who's moving him in direction, not in terms of settler identity, but in terms of him having to be a little more attuned the dynamics of gender and sex in his analysis of white supremacy. And I think it's a powerful conversation between the two of them. And like she's done with so many people, Audre Lorde has educated <laughs> us all and also yeah. has educated their James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. So in your fourth chapter, The Free Pass, you discuss the pretty sticky issue of team names and mascots. And, and sticky that is because they're there seem to be helpful and then not so helpful ways to approach this problem from a position of concern. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. And I just saw today that uh, apparently the Cleveland that team that was called the Indians are now called the Guardians. And it's really kind of nice. It's very nice to see that there is some movement here. I think that from these realms of, of the culture industry and sports, that there seems to be a movement of, of seeing the, the problematic nature of these names. So I'm completely supportive and grateful um, um, and in solidarity with, with the political efforts to change these names. And, and, and it's, it's encouraging to see that uh, there's some movement. In Massachusetts, where I am, um, there's an effort to move a bill through the state house um, to get passed so that no high school um, or, or any K through 12 can have any of these names. So I'm completely supportive of these and, and have been, when I can, been part of, of advocating for them in, in city council meetings and in, in, in state legislature. My concern, my only concern is that it's it's certainly the true that they're, they're racist names. Um, but if we're not accounting for the relationship to colonialism, that there are another form of dispossession, there are another form of appropriation of indigenous people's identity, um, a, a character caricature of indigenous people's identity, um, that we have to see it as not only a, as racist, as demeaning, um, as dismissive, um, as stereotypes, but also another form of a colonial gesture, of, of an erasure, of exploitation, of expro- expropriation. And um, for me, the, we need to not stop at the team names, but we understand that this is a process that by making indigenous peoples invisible, turning them into stereotypes, we then don't take indigenous peoples seriously as real living actors fighting for uh, land, uh, land back, for sovereignty um, against such things as pipeline developments. Um, and so I think fundamentally the, the, the anti-racist argument is one serious, strong piece of this. But if we're not taking the colonialist and the settler colonial argument in terms of what the process of appropriation is going on, we're not going to be able to get our, I think, move in a direction in which we get to the larger um, piece of it uh, in terms of the uh, uh, theft of land, uh, history of indigenous genocide, and the effort to support and consider what it would mean to, 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 to back and uh, live in a world in which indigenous indigenous people's sovereignty is a vibrant part of our political, um, our, our sense of community and a relationship to one another. So before we get to the final chapter, just a, just a quick sort of basic 
but maybe not so basic question. Um, why has it been so consistently forgotten? Uh, this this colonial piece that you're talking about that that from from the retelling of Bacon's Rebellion all the way to um, the team names issues. Um, why why do we and have we always forgotten um, to to think about U.S. history in terms of of colonialism and, and land theft? Well, it's a very good question. I mean, I think that. I think one sort of direct answer to it, I think to think about it and engage with it as a serious political matter that needs to be addressed really matters and it involves, if we're going to talk about reconstruction, a massive reconstruction of what it means for us to live together in a way in which is, is not oppressive, is emphasizing the freedom of all, um, and it does not require violence and separation of others and the extraction of, of, of value and property um, and uh in relationship to us, one another, as workers, as living beings, in relation to the land and life. And so to think about what it means to engage in colonial, uh, the history of colonialism today is to think about what it would mean to have a decolonial analysis that moves towards an anti-colonial project. So we get into such issues. What would it look like if we're going to talk about um, land back to indigenous peoples? Um, what would it look like? And this does not involve land back in terms of property, the way we talk about property. It involves rethinking our relationship to land and life. And that that's a more difficult way to frame things than, say, talking about racial equality, although getting to the issue of racial equality is incredibly difficult, as we know, that involves a violent reactionary movement, as we are seeing very much. But to imagine at least equality within the United States can, is at least something we can, we can figure in our imaginaries, right? Um, and so that at least is is something to envision, that we are all equal within this thing called the United States. But if we're talking about colonialism, we have to really imagine what it is to actually radically restructure what these lands are, are all about, which means thinking beyond the U.S. as a project. And that's not to say that anti-racist movements aren't in, invested in doing that as well, some of them. Um, but there's one thing to talk about a project that's about assimilation, where we're all equal within the U.S. project, say the U.S. Um, nation, mm-hmm. and another to talk about a project, a decolonial and then an anti-colonial project, in which you radically rethink what it means to talk about us being a community, being good relatives to one another, being good to the land and life and one another. And I think that becomes a much more difficult uh, direction to go. Um, but I think if we don't at least start talking about that engaging, I actually think it, it undermines our effort to talk about anti-racist projects as well. And I think that's a big part of it. It's easier to think about these things as matters of the past, um, that may, maybe it's tragic that this happened to indigenous peoples way back when, but we are where we are now, we can't do anything about it. Then to think about what does it mean to really start, start engaging with indigenous people's politics and the oppressions of settler colonialism as real active uh, forces in our political world today and to talk, talk about what it means to talk about a decolonial analysis and an anti-colonial politics today. And so I think it's, it raises I, the stakes politically, but I think necessarily. And I think that's a big part of it. It's just mm-hmm. difficult to imagine what to do with it now. So your final chapter looks to the, um, I guess to the very recent past and the presidency of Donald Trump. And you argue that we need to start thinking about both Trump and Trumpism in terms of white settler nationalism, not just simple racist demagoguery, as many Americans are, are familiar with it. Um, so how does adjusting our framework, as you suggest, help us better understand Trumpism? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I think I'm part of a larger group, a number of group of people are trying to think about Trumpism and, and, and you're sort of trying to 
think about a moving train, right? Trumpism is still going on and developing. And whether he runs again or not, clearly we can see in the political world, Trumpism is very much shaping um, the, the reactionary right today. Um, a good, the way I which I move through is, first of all, building upon um, Trump's own celebration of conquest, a celebration of domination. Now, that celebration of conquest and domination is, is very patriarchal, uh, sexually violent, uh, racist, xenophobic. Um, all of those things are a key part of it. But also he celebrates the conquest uh, of the nation and and builds a sort of language of domination conquest, which is in this these lands is very much about a settler colonial conquest and has also had a history of his own battles with um, and denigration of um, indigenous peoples. I think Trumpism, if it's just about not just about, but if it's about white supremacy alone, I actually don't think we grasp uh, in many ways the full danger of the present project. And to just to take one specific dynamic that's that others such as, uh, say, Joseph Lowndes at the University of Oregon, um, and um, Daniel Hosang um, at Yale have talked about is you actually have, in, 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 if you look at the Trumpist crowd, certainly it's predominantly white, but you also have an increasingly sort of racially diverse right, and, you know, in, in terms of the Proud Boys, in terms of the hardcore Trumpers, usually men, but not solely, but, but usually men. How do you account for if it's, if it's a solely racist project, distinctly white supremacist, which I think it actually is, but how do you account for the greater diversity of this movement? I say one thing that we have to account for is this relationship to colonialism, to the defense of the land, to the defense of the domestic space, to the defense of patriarchy, heteropatriarchy, to, in short, standing one's ground. And the standing one's ground is, is fundamentally about a type of anti-blackness. It is xenophobic. Um, it is also about claiming domination over this land that's been conquered, and to be willing to violently fight for and defend this particular ground, whether it's property in Kenosha, Wisconsin, whether it's the various forms of efforts to fight for, whether it's the McCloskey standing out with their weapons mm-hmm. against Black Lives Matter protests. If we don't actually see this, it's also a, a, an effort to not only defend whiteness, but also settler, settler colonialism as one in the same project. I don't think we're actually grasping not only the, this whole movement that, that precedes Trump and that he's animated, but also I think the dangers of it, but also how we mobilize. And I think I would hope that a project that is opposing Trumpism and the reactionary right is certainly focused on issues of, of racial freedom and, and, and equality, those around gender and class, and need to talk as part of that project about colonialism. Because um, if not, I think we are underestimating all the different sources that he is drawing upon, that Trumpism is drawing upon, that the Proud Boys articulate, that various parts of the reactionary right articulates about domination of land and bodies here in a racial, gendered, and colonialist terms. And so that's why I think it's very important to take this this obviously profound, dominating figure in our time, Trump and Trumpism, and understand him as very representative of white settler, um, uh, white the white settler nation both in terms of his rhetoric, but also his policies, as I point out, uh, but also in terms of what animates his the support for him that I, I think is clear is going to go just is going to go beyond just Trump. And we can see that in the reactionary right uh, across the country today. So what does it mean to refuse settler memory, as you as you suggest in your conclusion? And, and where do you look for inspiration in terms of uh, that sort of resistance? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, refusing settler memory first means uh, refusing this, this disavow. So you don't just gesture towards indigenous peoples or settler colonialism as something you know you have to talk about and then go back to what you wanted to talk about in, in, to begin with in terms of whether it's race, gender, uh, class inequalities, capitalism. These things are all sewn into, of course, issues of the history and the present of colonialism and also part of what I think indigenous peoples in, in, in the many radical forms you can see are fighting against. Um, uh, it is to think about how we bring this back, this, this refusal is to refuse the disavow and to avow the fact that we have to engage with colonialism as a project that needs to be opposed and we have to engage seriously in, I hope, in collaboration. I am a white settler. I am not of an indigenous nation but in collaboration with indigenous peoples in their movements, which is not to say all indigenous political movements are, of course, the same, but of course we can engage with the projects that we find are trying to also deal with issues of capital, extractive capitalism, um, uh, sexual violence, racism, and so on and so forth. So refusing is to, is to then refuse the disavow to avow it as part of the way we're imagining our, the politics we're, we're engaging with, the forms of collaboration, and the worlds we're imagining. And me, um, as a white settler scholar, um, uh, I look to many sources in the book, but also I end the book looking at um, um, often uh, indigenous and black um, radical uh, women, uh, poets, artists, um, um, activists, organizations. Um, I talk about um, the um, Lakota scholar, Lakota poet, uh, Lele Long Soldier, who I think provides in her beautiful, powerful collection, Whereas, an imagery of how to think about the relation between the past and the present. Um, Christina Sharp's work in the wake for me has also been a way to imagine a way forward that actually is taking account of the past that is not past, as she would put it, and to think about a way forward in which we are beholden to one another. Um, and then to um, organizations such as those moving towards arguing for land back, uh, for engaging with the fact that we are all treaty people. Those of us who are on these lands who are white settlers are often here because a treaty was formed in the U.S. or Canada, and that we have obligations to live up to those treaties. That is not necessarily going to get us to the most radical decolonial project yet, but at least starts to support indigenous peoples, the commitment that settler governments have made to indigenous peoples. Um, so I think there's many sources of indigenous and black radical activism, artists, scholars that we can look to who provide us guidance and direction. Doesn't have to mean we have to agree with every word, but certainly there is a, a an emergent, I mean, there's always been strong scholarship, but emergent contemporary scholarship and activism that I think we can all be reading, engaging with, and politically collaborating with as, as we deem appropriate. But certainly in that way, we are refusing settler memory to refuse to just disavow the fact that settler colonialism is very much an active part of our political lives today, our social lives, our economic lives, our cultural and artistic lives. And indigenous people's politics is also thriving in many ways and fighting for and against things that I think are making our world a worse place to find a way to fight for a better place. And I think those are the ways we refuse settler memory. So in what ways have the ideas that you engaged with in Settler Memory, uh, the book, um, sort of transformed your, your, your teaching, your pedagogy? Oh, yeah. I mean, kind I think a heavy many, question, just, just, no, it's a, it's a, no, it's a great question because I mean, in many ways, the book, the book had many different origins, but one was teaching and trying to figure out a way to help my students, um, understand the, constitutive relationship between uh, race politics and indigenous people's politics, 
colonialism, settler colonialism, and white supremacy. And, and helping my students be able to understand it meant that I had to understand it. And so this is why, as I say, I help my students dig more thoroughly into Du Bois and to Baldwin. Um, it's not because I'm trying to veer away from indigenous uh, writers and scholars. We are reading powerful people such as Kim Tallbear and Aileen Morton Robinson um, who are, and Lee Maracle, who are important parts of, of my own um, education and teaching. But to think about the relationship between them. And so part of the challenge is to, you know, you know, we, we, we organize a syllabus around different sections. Right. So we don't just have an indigenous people section, then a black politics section. Part of it is to constantly talk about the relationship amongst them. And, you know, it feels like you're trying to, like, you know, spin plates and keep a couple, a number of things in the air. And as teachers, we're used to the sort of the splits, you know, spinning plates while we're riding a unicycle to keep the students entertained. But to me, um, it's about saying that when we're talking about white supremacy, you know, go to, so what we'll do in my class is we'll go back to Bacon's Rebellion and I'll tell them the standard story. And I'll say, okay, now if we talk about indigenous people's presence, the violence toward them, what land meant in this conflict, how do we then start to rethink what it means to be white? And the students start to bring it together. Um, and I, so as we move through moments or think about what it means to talk about structural racism, the students will like, well, we have to talk about structural colonialism. We have to talk about not only bodies and the treatment of human beings as enslaved peoples, of course, but also where did the land come that, that was the place in which you had plantations? And what's the interrelationship between enslavement and dispossession? And you move throughout history in terms of if we're going to do historical analysis, but in terms of conceptually. And so for me, I find the great, the best moments are where the students themselves start making the connections. If we're going to talk about black power and red power that don't have the same politics exactly, but are building upon some radical critique of, of um, the U.S., of U.S. white supremacy and U.S. colonialism and, and imperialism itself. So the teaching for me, it's been, I think that without my teaching uh, this particular course, but also developing and, and really the influence from my students. And as we work together, I don't think the book would come out as it was. From, fundamentally, it's certainly a book that I want, I hope people read and can have another way to think about things. But certainly it's it's been fundamental to the way in which I've tried to push myself as a teacher to not separate things out, to not engage my own forms of disavowal, mm-hmm. to think about that we can understand this, this political project called the United States. And I call it a political project uh, not a nation, not a state that is that is settled, but a political project that is fundamentally built upon racism and colonialism and heteropatriarchy. And how do we think about these things together, as difficult as it is, instead of having sort of single sort of pillars of what we talk about? We're going to talk about race today, and we're going to talk about heteropatriarchy today, next day, and then colonialism the next day. How do we continually weave these together to get a larger sense of the project, but also a larger sense of who should be our comrades and our collaborators in opposing this system if we feel like it's something that's unjust, oppressive, and that we can live in hopefully a freer, less oppressive way. Fascinating. Well, thanks so much for all of your time today, Kevin. Uh, before we let you go, is is there anything new in the works for you? Oh, thanks. Um I, there's a couple things, you know, once you finish a book, you just want to take a breath and right. sleep for about a year. But um, I'm inter- very interested in the, in, in you know, I, I talk about racial capitalism in the book, but I don't dig into it quite as much. But certainly it's there in terms of the, the fundamental relationship between um, capitalism and, the, and, and um, the extraction of surplus value. And, of course, the extraction, the turning of, of uh, indigenous territories into property and racial and the racial categorization. And I'm interested in continuing to pursue this in terms of, you know, going along with my theme, 
how we talk about the relationship of, of colonialism, settler colonialism, and racial capitalism. I'm also interested in pursuing a little bit the role of, um, of race colonialism and, and gender uh, oppression in sports of various uh, sorts. Obviously, coming out a little bit out of my chapter on, on uh, sports names, but I'm interested in the practices and the role of bodies in sports. Um, and so that's one project. And then sort of in, in I'm in, you know, the critical race uh, theory world that's being, of course, very much under the under the spotlight by the mm-hmm. right right now. And so continuing to theorize how we can um, connect critical race theory and indigenous studies, maybe in terms of uh, different, I think, directions that I think are not as helpful and ways that we can move in a direction as teachers, as scholars and activists to think about how to talk about structural racism. So those are sort of three general buckets that are still like buckets that, that still need to be filled properly. That's sort of the gen- direction I'm going, but certainly similar themes that I have now, but I think different uh, focal points of study. Um, and I think the next sort of set of papers I know I'm doing are, are going to be connected in some way to further theorizing racial capitalism. Um, as of yet, since I'm still in the middle of grading papers, I have I need some time to sit back and read some books. A lot of sitting back and reading some great new books to figure that out. So that's those are the general categories I'm thinking about moving next. Kevin Braniel, thanks so much. Thank you, John. This was wonderful. I appreciate the invitation and uh, thank you so much for the great questions.